Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Alex Thompson. Alex is a diversity and inclusion speaker and has a passion for building bridges between communities. Alex shares his journey from growing up in a religious household and what it was like coming out to his Baptist minister father and family. After leaving home, he found others like him, and during his coming of age, he met the love of his life that had its own set of hurdles. Alex today works professionally educating people on how we can build bridges between those who are different from one another using consistent, gentle behaviors. Let's hear Alex's story. Good afternoon, Alex. Good afternoon. How's it going? It is going great. I'm glad to be here today. We are so happy to have you with us. Uh, (laughs) Just want to introduce you to some of our listeners here. And you are currently uh, talking to us uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. Is that correct? I am the great Commonwealth of Kentucky, home of the Kentucky Derby. Absolutely. Yes. But Kentucky is uh, not where you uh, started off your, your, your life. Where, where were you born? No, Kentucky was not where the story of Alex Thompson started. <laughs> I was originally born in Nassau in the Bahamas. So uh, everybody knows the Bahamas for great vacations. So I was originally born in Nassau, and uh, my parents migrated to Nashville, Tennessee, um, f- so that my father could complete his PhD education and teach at Tennessee State University, as well as American Baptist Theological Seminary there in Nashville. So you were, uh, how old were you when, when that happened? I was only three years old. Uh, I was on, I don't have a memory of the Bahamas. My memories first started like every other three-year-old, uh, which is, you know, probably what, age four or five or something. And that, so my memory started in Tennessee. So your your memory for what you had as far as for reference was always Tennessee as a child. Did you uh, like you know as far as you know four or five years old? Did mom and dad tell you stories about like back home when you'd be out like maybe in the grocery store or how things were maybe a little bit different or life comparisons at all or, or oh, was there any? Absolutely, uh, absolutely, uh, and I think you can ask any child of an immigrant. You sort of toggle between two lives, right? Between two <laughs> worlds. So I toggle between this deeply rooted religious uh, Caribbean culture and between Nashville, Tennessee, home of country music, etc. So <laughs> my world was always uh, my feet were always planted in two different worlds. You know the, the word that uh, we use is community, and just uh, how community shows up. I mean, community always shows up, but just differently. And um, but there seems to be like under undercurrents that seem to be common in all communities. Does that make Certainly. sense? Absolutely, of course. Yeah. And there were a lot of sort of commonalities. For example, the the commonality of family. Family is extremely important in the Caribbean culture, in the Southern Black Baptist culture uh, that I was involved in in Tennessee. So the two worlds had lots of similarities. But of course, because they are two separate worlds, there were some differences that you would learn to navigate and negotiate. And really, it's it's no different, again, if you speak to anybody that are, that perhaps is bilingual or grew up in different different culture than, than they were born. It's, it's a navigation sort of thing. 
So, Alex, you said that your your father came, uh, you that you all moved to uh, Tennessee because he was pursuing his PhD. What was he uh, looking to study? My father has a, a two PhDs actually. My father has a PhD in clinical psychology and a THD in theology, a doctorate in theology. Mm. So after he was done with his university work, what did he do? Well, he did a, a number of things. He did some uh, work in clinics, uh, mental health clinics, but he mostly concentrated his work in religion. And mm. again, he went to teaching religion. He taught at American Baptist College as well as Tennessee State University, and he began to pastor churches. With the, the the churches he was pastoring, did you, I, I assume you and your your family attended and were active in of those course. communities. Absolutely, yeah. of course. It it's a part of the tradition of the African American community that it's not only the minister that's the head of the church, but his entire family deeply rooted in the church, and that becomes uh, your life, not only on Sunday, but Monday through Sunday. So, <laughs> it, it, uh, we hear stories of people in adulthood complaining, oh, I had to go to church every Sunday, but for the child of a PK, yeah, that's, PK. that's a pretty common term, a preacher's kid, that became your entire life Monday through Sunday. Mm-hmm. Was... Uh... Just out of curiosity, you mentioned um, an African-American. Was it more of an African-American church, a Baptist church that you attended? Absolutely. Now, be mindful. I'm going to be 50 years old next week, okay? So, uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and just like today, churches are heavily, heavily segregated, okay? I think the, the phenomenon of desegregated churches, that's really a recent thing. So I grew up in the quintessential Baptist church in the South, right? The hand clapping, the praise and worship, the you know it, the whole experience, the fire and brimstone, yes? So I grew up in the, that experience that it's still with me until today. With with that experience, what was what was elementary school like? Elementary school was Interesting. Uh, be mindful. I grew up attending churches in inner city downtown Nashville, right? But I was reared in a mostly white community called Brentwood, which is just outside of Nashville. So elementary school was interesting for me to be one of the very few minority children in school. And again, Let's be mindful. This was a different day and time. This was in the 70s and the 80s. So the thought of diversity and inclusion and acceptance (laughs) was a different thing back then. I think it was non-existent. So it proved to be a very interesting experience that's really kind of shaped me as to who I am today. Was there a direct, uh, just out of curiosity, was there a direct comparison, like being able to be like, oh, you know, you you go to church where it's one world and then school's another? Oh my gosh. I can tell you, it was, uh, as a child, as an early child, it was sort of code switching. And I'm sure perhaps you and your audience have heard that term code switching before, but it was very much code switching that Monday through Friday, I'm in a predominantly white environment and predominantly white affluent environment. And then 
on the weekend, I'm in inner city Nashville attending Mount Nebo Baptist Church. Mm. You know, it even sounds Southern, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Attending Mount Nebo Baptist Church with praise and worship and fire and brimstone. So it was very much from an early age, learning to navigate into two separate worlds and learning how to turn on and turn off characteristics from language to body language to speech to so much. So it really played an integral part into who I am. So that, I mean, that's really interesting. I, as you were talking, all I kept thinking was, did you you know, having to do all of this code switching, did you ever feel or were you ever discriminated at either, like in either world? What a great question. And can I tell you, I was discriminated in both worlds. Mm. I'm going to step back and say that again. I was discriminated in both worlds. And and let me uh, share a little bit. I'm a minority child in the South in the 70s and 80s, attending a predominantly white school. My parents are not African-American. So I want to say that, and it, it is very important for you and your listeners to understand, to understand my story. Mm-hmm. My parents were not African-American. Therefore, the, the cultural aspects and the belief systems and the ideology were not the same as the quintessential African-American you saw. So I would have Monday through Fridays constantly um, fighting academically, fighting socially for acknowledgement and acceptance instead of being that black kid, okay? And then on the weekends or times when we were in church and dealing with an predominantly black culture is I was different. I was different in that I looked a little different because my family was Caribbean and we had somewhat of a much more ethnic look. I was different in that we spoke differently. Hmm. My parents spoke with us accents. And because of the environment that I was in, I spoke um, what some would say would be a little more eloquent, right? Mm. And that sort of removes you. And we all remember childhood. And for all of us, childhood was a struggle, yes? Mm. (laughs) So (laughs) the only thing you wanted to do in childhood was blend and blend completely, right? There was never that place where I could blend completely. Uh, Do you hear me? Yeah. Wow. It's uh, when you say that the, the, the only thing that I can think of is as a child, did you know that this is what this was? Were you able to identify that this is what was happening to you? Or were you, um, as you were like, you know, experiencing these things, did you just think this is how life is? That's a great question. No, I, was very aware of who I was and where I was and the environment that I was in. But let me tell you, I don't think that's unique to me, Alex Thompson. I would encourage you to ask any of your African-American listeners, African-American family members or friends, you are very aware of who you are and your environment. So as a child, I learned very early on when I could be um, 
outspoken, when I could be funny, when I could be humorous, and when I had to constantly prove that I was articulate, when I had to constantly prove that I was academically proficient. So it was that constant movement, and I became aware of that constant movement. Did you have like any confidence in like a friend that was a confident that you could be an authentic version of your, yourself with that maybe you, you met maybe through school or church or anything like that? They got to see all of you? Well, then the question becomes, what is authentic? Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to say that again so you could absorb that. The question then becomes, what is authentic? Mm. All the world is a stage and we are players. Yeah. Shakespeare, I believe. So. Yeah. Do we know ourselves when we are in environment at work with our spouse, with our neighbors, with our church members? So it becomes the question becomes what is authentic? Is it all of those things or is it one particular thing? So for me in my story, I realized very early on, very, very early on, that I needed to code switch. Mm-hmm. I realized very, very early on that. We were marginalized of the marginalized, meaning my family were immigrants to this country. My, While I spoke English and they spoke English, I didn't carry an accent as they did, right? So I remember the struggles of my parents constantly having to explain who they were and where they were from. Mm-hmm. Right? So for for me, the question of authenticity is... What is authentic? Is it all of those things? Or is it one particular thing? Am I more authentic Monday through Friday? Or am am I more authentic when I'm in a predominantly African-American experience and environment? You know, I've never had anyone quite put that that way. So thank you for causing us to to think about this. Um, Absolutely. And I just want to pause for a second and think about, you know, now that you've really caused me to reflect on this, is that how love shows up, the action is different for different people I'm around. How I talk to someone, how I act. I can think if I talk to five different people a day from five different walks of my life, I may show up for them differently in life. Yes. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Of course it does. Yeah. You know, you're very observant, you know, from your life experiences. When did you start to observe that maybe there might be like a same-sex attraction for yourself that was different? I I am one of those persons that authentically believe that I am genetically a gay person. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was not aware of orientation and sex and sexuality very, very early in my life. Uh, I will share my my husband that is a big, brute, masculine kind of guy. His mother shares a story of him telling her that he was gay at age five. Mm. In those exact words, or was it different... It was different words. Uh, it, w- it was, uh, and um, not to derail, but in his story, he was playing. His he and his sister were playing on the floor one day, and he took her baby doll and threw it across the floor or something. And his mother said, "Timmy, don't do that because when you grow up, you need to learn how to take care of your baby when you have a wife." And she shared this story with me years later. He was five. He said, "No, mommy." I'm not going to grow up to marry a girl. I'm going to marry a boy. Mm. At five. 
So, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, fast forward, if you would know him and see him now, he's a very brute, very masculine kind of guy, but he always knew. For me, orientation was was not on my radar. I always knew that I was different. I attributed that different because I was always in different environments. I was mm. the stranger in our residential environment, living in a white, all-white community, attending all-white schools. I was that stranger, that outcast. I was a stranger in the African-American experience because many of the things that my African-American counterparts dealt with, I didn't deal with. So I was a stranger there as well. So for most of my life, I attributed that feeling of being different that feeling of not quite fitting in, that's what I attributed to until the realization of my orientation came to the forefront. Mm. So when when did that happen for you, when you came uh, to, to realize uh, what your orientation is? My orientation came about, I, I, I think my story is just like so many of your listeners, my orientation came about around age 12, 13, mm. you know, that prepubescent stage. And it was just very clear that my attractions were much more emotionally based than physically based, in that I found myself having real strong emotional attachment to same gendered persons. Mm. So I was curious, was, did you play any, any sports, any theater where there was, where you were on a team with any of these, with these men? These, Absolutely. These yeah. I, I'm an athlete. Okay. So I'm not the traditional theater kid. I was an athlete. I played, you name it, but mostly baseball. And I'm still at 50 years old. I still pretend in my head to be a, a softball player, but <laughs> I was, I was an athlete. So having the same gender interactions and being with each other and traveling on teams and so forth, that was just a part of who I was and what my life was like. So, Alex, this was in the 80s too, right? It is was, that, yes. So this is also, just like I was a reminder for all of us, this is also during the AIDS crisis. Yes. And a lot of, obviously, like a lot of negative press or a lot of negative media yes. mm -hmm. uh, towards the gay community at the time. Do you feel like, did any of that or watching any of that, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, you know, if you're, you're sort of in this religious household where you're probably, you know, this is, I'm guessing that this is probably not like okay in the, the eyes of the church. It's sort of not okay with what you're seeing on television. Did that have any impact on you like being able to explore who you, who you are? Absolutely. It did. Uh, by my nature, I'm sort of a methodical person. I'm not wanting to like just jump into into the pool, right? I want to get the temperature of the water, check the surroundings, yes? But mm -hmm. I can tell you it absolutely did. And I'm going to take you back to a story that I remember as vividly today as I did so many years ago. I must have been 12 or 13 years old. And there was a, a very famous uh, televangelist uh, named Jimmy Swaggart in the South. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy Swaggart was full of fire and brimstone and he screamed and yelled. I mean, he was just so passionate about what he said, right? So it was my family's habit that on Sunday mornings, as we're all getting ready for church, 
we would turn on the television to Jimmy Swaggart in the living room. Now, I'm going to date myself here, so please forgive me, but these were the days of a television console where the television was large and it sat on the floor. Okay, yep. So some of your listeners may not be able to remember that far back. But nonetheless, so he was on the television. And if you recall, he was, again, very passionate. And I remember him talking about those homosexuals. And he's, <laughs> he would say it like that, those homosexuals. And, and it drew me. It, tr- it drew me. And I didn't even know the definition of the word really. I didn't really know. And it drew me. And I remember walking out of my bedroom into the common area of my home and watching him. And mm. they they had him very close up and he's pointing his fingers and he said, Mama, Daddy, don't you let your boys, because they never thought about women, right? Right. right. Uh, don't you let your boys get with those homosexuals. They'll mm. turn them. And he uh, he is just just lashing the, the gay and lesbian community, right? Mm-hmm. And he said something that I remember very well. He said, don't you let them go to one of them there gay bars. And he talked mm. like that. You know, he whispered uh, to enunciate. He said, those gay bars. Because when they do, that music is hypnotic and it's full of the devil. And once they hear that, they'll never go back. And I remember thinking, is that true? Is that really, really true? And I mean, it, kind of. It's true. I, if I, I the music's right, though. No, no, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, the first time that I went to a gay bar, which you know, I was 20, so it was like some seven, eight years later, I remember walking in and went, oh my God, Jimmy Swagger was right. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Oh, oh, that's so funny. Oh. You know, Alex, as you're telling that story, it's so... Uh, so I, I relate to it so much. I remember watching, Not I, I don't have like a vivid memory of that, but I remember watching like uh, negative press against the gay community yes. when I was a kid, and specifically in the 80s. And I always knew that there was something a little bit different with me. And I remember watching those messages and being drawn in to them, not that I was wanting to go against anyone or want to go after the gay community, but it was there wasn't any information. I couldn't get my hands on anything to learn more about the gay community, and it was almost felt like a like a source of information Absolutely. for me to get to educate to educate myself to make myself begin to understand maybe this is who I am and I'm and like you like I can't like yeah I, I want to go to that gay bar and see what that music's all about absolutely so. well and I can relate to that because again um, I came of age you know maturity wise uh, physically um, during the 80s in the heart of the AIDS crisis right mm-hmm. so the only news that you got were what I guess we can relate it to COVID now, you turn on the television and all you hear are today is 3,332, right? So I remember Max Donaldson, broadcaster for ABC News, talking about the numbers of this plague, right? And they would show these numbers, and I didn't quite understand it, but when they would show people, I authentically knew those were my people. Wow. I knew that, and I knew that in my heart. I knew that in my spirit, and 
those were my people. I can tell you, I was a 15-year-old that bought the book and the band played on. Mm. You remember that book? Yeah. Uh, I, I was a 15-year-old that bought that book. Because you just knew. You just because know. I knew. Because right. I, 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 I knew, and I knew, I knew, I knew. And so I think one of the blessings as to where we are today in 2020 is that we've now, as a society, sort of let that myth go that it's some sort of triggering event or something. I think for the most part, even, even folks on the right that may not be in agreement, uh, they understand now that people, you, your orientation is sort of set forth early on in your life. And whether you acknowledge that or not, it's a different story. Thank you for sharing all of that. That is, it's really helpful to, you know, remind ourselves, you know, who we are is who we are. We just, once you come to terms with that, it sort of makes things maybe a little bit easier to deal, you know, internally with whatever you might be going through. So thanks for sharing that. We've learned a little bit about like your growing up, your childhood. We know sort of where you, you are sort of with your orientation. When let's, can we just talk about what happens uh, as you get a little bit older, you go off to college and what happens when you go off to college? Well, like most persons, uh, college is the world of discovery, yes? Yes. So I I went to college, and I realized that there are people like me in many aspects, okay? Mm. Not only my orientation. I go to college, and I realize that there are lots of persons that are foreign-born, lots of persons that are naturalized citizens, lots of persons that are ethnic and academically achieving, right? So mm-hmm. lots of people. M- my first day on campus was just filled with a realization, and I truly think that's what college is for. So it, it served its purpose. Then I also discovered that there are lots of gay people. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people in which I could connect with. There are lots of African-American gay people. There are lots of rural gay people. So that there was mm-hmm. just a variety of persons for, for which for me to connect with and to bond with and to become friends with. So having this experience, obviously you have, you took the the step then to to come out not only to your new friends but then to to family back home as well. Freshman year, of course, uh, I went home and I was excited, and uh, <laughs> I can remember going back home during Thanksgiving, perhaps, and and a neighbor saying, "Boy, you're different somehow, right?" Mm-hmm. And she recognized that difference. She didn't say what it was. She said, "You're." different somehow. So throughout my freshman year, yes, I went home for Christmas and Thanksgiving and and all of those things. And I even went back home for the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Okay. And by that point, I I was a completely different person. Okay. (laughs) I was a completely different person that took some adjustment on behalf of my parents. Uh, But, you know, that story's not unique to just me. I think many of us go through that as well. So, what was coming out like to your parents? I can remember my parents came up to university in fall. It was very, very cold, or it was the start of cold. And, and I didn't have a jacket, right? So my parents took my roommate and I, we went out to Red Lobster. Right. Oh my gosh, Red Lobster. We <laughs> thought we were Oh my gosh, we thought we were something special. Right. So <laughs> we went to Red Lobster with my mom and dad and we went to the mall and and 
I bought a coat and all those silly things. And I remember in my head saying, this is the time. There was just this bell in my head that this is the time. Now, keep in mind, I'm 19 years old. I'm sort of arrogant, you know, so what could happen to me? Yes. So I shared my orientation with my parents and it went horribly, horribly wrong. There's no other way to put that. It just yeah. went very, very badly. It breaks my heart when I hear that from people uh, to know that because I've been there, like you know, at that meal, like you know, at the for me it was the Olive Garden, mm. <laughs> you know, where like we're all just having a good time here, and then all of a sudden it all stops. Yes, and it, it, to elaborate a little bit, if I may, uh, I, I shared my orientation with my family and it was um little to no conversation little to none okay so i returned home for thanksgiving that year and thanksgiving was fine um i'm from a caribbean family so thanksgiving involves you the neighbor the next door neighbor the down the street neighbor the bus driver it, it includes everybody so the sunday of Thanksgiving week when it's time to return to university. I remember it very vividly. Uh, my father walked into my bedroom and he, he had something in his hand. And I, I thought, what is that in his hand? It was his checkbook. My father wrote me a check and he said, I want you to take this check and I want you to make the best out of this check that you can. But this will be the termination of our relationship. He said that I am a black Baptist minister and I'm trying to grow a church and I can't have this. So you go, here's the money, do with it whatever you wish. He said, I would hope for you to use it to continue your education, but good luck. And there you go. And that was that i can't imagine what that must have felt like as you were you know talking this through the the part of this that stands out to me is it's almost like not only are your parents telling you your dad's telling you to leave it's almost like you're having to leave your this religious upbringing that you've had it's almost like that now is not part of your life anymore i in a way everything except sort of this your new you know your new friends your this maybe you know sort of chosen group of people that you're with now your whole world gets turned upside down where it, it has to be more layered than just you know your your parents telling you this is the end of our relationship. It is multi-layered. And when I tell you the security that we as people feel, you know, um, home, health, food, those basic things, right? Imagine not knowing if those things were around. Yeah. And let me, let me tell you, I, as I say this to you, I still feel blessed because a lot of people have had a lot worse stories. Yeah, it's true. Right? So yeah. I take it from the blessing that it could have been a lot worse. Now, let me tell you, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I went many, many decades, decades, please hear me, 
decades without connection to my family. But that experience, some people are physically assaulted. Some people, depending on cultures, are killed, right? Mm -hmm. I thought I was the fortunate one. At the time, let me tell you what I thought. I thought, okay, well, give me your check, sir. I'll take it. (laughs) Sure, bring it on. I'll take it, and I'm going back to university with my new tribe, and that's how I define people in my life to this day. I'll take it. I'll go back to university with your money and my new tribe, and I'll be just fine. Because we say that from the arrogance of a 20-year-old. Yeah. Right? So what it taught me, though, was he meant it. (laughs) When he said, don't come (laughs) back, don't call, he meant it. I thought it was just like a passing thing. You know, he meant it, right? And But what it taught me, guys, it taught me a survival skill. Mm. It taught me, oh, just to push forward. It taught me to just grind and grind and grind and grind do you feel now today do you feel that that is that it obviously this was like a big moment in your life this was a a monumental moment i i would guess does that still is that still part of your drive do you think Absolutely. I call it my watershed moment. In my life, Mm. I've had like six watershed moments, and that was one. Mm. That moment was, you must make it in the world by yourself. Yeah. You must make it in the world and know that people can love you and say they love you, but you have to love yourself first and then you move forward. Uh, the, the the fear that uh, other people in my tribe had at university, worried about their mothers, their brothers, their fraternity brothers, so I never felt that fear. Because if your family can leave you, what's worse than that? Mm-hmm. Oh. So what, what's, what, so as looking back some 30 years ago, yes, um, looking back on it while it was monumental and painful and hurt, and there were many, many struggles that we could not get to in this podcast of being alone or uh, being left in the dorm over Thanksgiving because I had nowhere to go and slept in an entire dorm by myself. You know, Um, those things are terrible. However, Boy, they sure build an armor, mm-hmm. and they sure make it made me tough. Yeah, and it made me strong. Yeah, I mean, and I'm really glad you pointed out like the Thanksgiving because in my head I want to be like, oh, you know, you had your chosen family, you had this, you know, you were able to create, and, and that's what we do. Like, you know, we identify what the problem is, and then we take the action to create whatever it is we're craving. You know, but uh, there still were moments. It sounds, you know, obviously where. Oh, absolutely. Oh, many, many moments. Yes, we created, we create family and friends, right? And we create tribe. And from a university perspective, you know, I had friends that were, but there were those times that came where those friends were gone. Yeah. Yeah. And I was there. And really, I, I shared, I had one Thanksgiving that I literally lived in the dorm by myself. Yeah. Like the entire dorm was evacuated, yeah. but I was there by myself. Yeah. 
And that's they, just, but that's a part of my story. Yeah. And that's something that I always try to take to heart is that, you know, is it the holidays, especially, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and especially on LGBTQI youth, how that can be a uh, quite the opposite experience for the rest of the world. And there was actually, I was reading yesterday just about how actually that with the pandemic, with 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 the virtual stuff and not having to go home, that it's actually been a saving grace, that, like the upside for some people not having to go through that. So even today to know that, just to be aware of that, and especially to understand that the 13 to 19, 20 year old age, that there's a lot of people that are in vulnerable positions that... Um, just to, you know, keep keep an eye out for those people, you know? Yes, and we all know the stats of homeless LGBTQI yeah. folks. We all know those the statistics. And if not for a different day and time, perhaps that would have been me. But listen, I was the lucky one. I was yeah. I was the lucky one. I was yeah. blessed. I had a university uh, experience that kept pushing me and kept me moving forward. I know from talking to you previously, you moved on to grad school. Uh, I did. And uh, was that in the same town or where, where no, did you No, no. I moved to the University of Louisville at, in Louisville, Kentucky. So I finished undergraduate school there and uh, that check was not that big, guys. So it ran out. <laughs> oh, come on, Dad. No. And I've, I tried the call for more, but uh, it was met with a, a phone that was hung up. But uh, I... Praise be to God, I was able to meet just the right people, be able to do the right things, um, join university things in which I got scholarship money for, academic scholarship money for. So I was able to finish, and I moved to the University of Louisville for graduate school. Do you feel any time when you were sort of moving through this, do you feel like you had, like you said, that you found the right people, you met the right people? Were there any like serendipitous moments like looking back? Did that ever feel like things were like things sort of fell into place or you were able to sort of follow your instincts or your, you know, your gut to get to to get you where you were today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew I knew what I had to do. And just a, a backstory that Christmas after my uh, family had written me the check and told me not to return because they were building a church and I would be like an embarrassment to them, et cetera. I thought, oof, boy. But let me tell you, I knew then I must move forward. So I found the right people to help me move forward, found academic advisors that I was quite frank with and open. And so the person you hear today, the person that will probably overshare, <laughs> as I talked about <laughs> earlier, that person's authentic, right? I tend to overshare. So I found advisors to move me forward. I found friends to move me forward. I found mentors. I believe in the notion of mentor-mentee relationships, mm -hmm. okay? Personal, professional, etc. I truly believe in that. And that's something, respectfully, that we in the LGBTQI community, we don't do enough. Mm, we right. do not do yeah, enough. Yeah, Those right. guys that went before us, that were in the middle of the AIDS crisis and made it through, we don't partner with them enough. The, yeah. the teenager that is, you know, probably getting picked on or bullied a little bit, we don't mentor that person yeah. enough. But mm -hmm. I knew the power of mentoring and those relationships from university to graduate to work to relationships, that those things pushed and moved me forward.
Mm. Alex, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I, I'm, I feel like the idea of having to help one another, it, it's something where I feel like for me, my experience, I always have felt that I needed to, I had to do everything on my own, you know, that I have to, I have to be the one, I have to be the one. And, and it wasn't until, you know, in a, a little bit later on in my professional career where I started working with coaches or mentors and really understanding that we're all in this experience together and it's not something that we have to do by ourselves. I started mentoring a group of uh, students who are in an entrepreneur's class and we do a Zoom meeting like every three weeks or something. And I'm just there to help them think about the project that they're, it's a year-long project that they're working on. And I'm just there to help answer questions and give them real-life experience. And as much as I am helping them, they are helping me in ways, in even Absolutely. greater ways. So I, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think so often we feel that we're alone or that if you ask for help, it's not the, it's a sign of weakness and it's not. Yes. And I think if we're able to come together more often, I think that there's just some bigger, more impactful things that we can do together. Absolutely. And, and one of my strong passions is the, the notion of not only building bridges between communities, but building bridges within our community. You said earlier about, you know, almost like the oversharing, but, you know, people can't read my mind, you know, and that's when I've learned that, you know, asking for help and, and speaking up, that that's when then the dots get connected with the people that are on the receive, you know, we, we, how we get to come together. And Obviously, like when I'm asking for help, I'm not asking somebody to to do it. It's more like, show me, how did you do it? Right? Yes. Yeah. How did you make yeah. it? Because it's yes. not that it's not complicated. Someone there's a blueprint for it somewhere. Someone's already done something that we're looking that you might be looking to do. And it's instead of trying to reinvent the wheel or try, you know, there's there's always a resource to be able to help you get to whatever destination it is that you're going. Yeah. Absolutely. I always say there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so, We're going to talk more about uh, community and mentoring and all that stuff, but you did meet someone new under the sun, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I certainly did. So yes. tell me about, uh, we, we talked about the, this five-year-old boy that uh, was going to eventually marry a boy, he told his mother. Yes. Intro Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Intro Tim, yes. I, I, I met my, my now husband when I was in graduate school. I moved to the city and I didn't know anyone in the city and just happened to talk to this guy at a local Kroger, <laughs> which is our chain of grocery stores. And he said to me, hey, I know you don't know anybody, but I'm having a gathering. You're welcome to come. He said, now I'm going to forewarn you. I have friends of all kinds of stripes and colors and backgrounds. I said, okay, fine. So I went to this party on a Saturday night, right? <laughs> uh, I went to this party and I walked in the door and saw my, my friend that I just met a day or so before at a grocery store. And he said, come on in. I'm glad you came. And as cheesy as it sounds, and you're probably going to throw me off your podcast and your listeners are going to say, oh, God, this guy. I knew when I saw him that I was going to marry him. I told, I told my college friend, I went home that night and I called her and I said, you'll never guess what happened to me. 
I met this dude that I'm going to marry. And that's the language that I used because that's just how I always yeah. thought it so, would be. So we, we, we've gotten so, to know you, know you, Alex. Can you, can you describe Tim yes. to us? Uh, you know, that initial, like, so if we're walking down the aisle of you at Kroger's, give us a, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, the description is a, a little unique. Okay. So uh, when I met my husband that night, I, he's a bigger guy. Uh, he's very rural. Uh, he had this great big beard that kind of looked like um, the country music singers these days, right? He had this beard that was down, and he had oily, dirty <laughs> fingernails, right? Just the opposite of of what you would think of me if you spent time with me, right? So he kind of looked like Chris Stapleton. I mean, that's exactly who he looked like. And I saw him, and I thought wow, this is odd. But again, my friend had lots of different types of people there. And I thought this was great right up my alley. So I saw him and uh, there was an immediate attraction. Okay. There was immediate Mm -hmm. physical attraction. So I saw him and I thought, okay, well, I'll I'll make my way around to him sometime. (laughs) Right. And woo him with my charms. Right. So it was perhaps an hour Later on, he was sitting on the couch by himself, not talking, and he had this big bandage on his thumb, and it was gross, and it was bloody, and it was just a mess. It was just a a complete mess. So I sat next to him, and I grabbed his hand, and I said, what happened to your thumb? And he recoiled. He he recoiled, and my knee-jerk reaction was, who does this guy think he is? I'm just trying to talk to him. He's the one with a bloody Band-Aid thumb, right? I'm doing you a favor by talking to you, right? So I got all indignant and nasty, right? And I realized he just wasn't having much conversation with me. I literally got off the couch, and throughout the night, I would see him looking at me. And so the the night progressed on, and I thought, I'm going to go in for one more try because, you know, when at first you don't mm-hmm. succeed, yes. So <laughs> I tried again and I said, uh, you know, I tried to talk to you about your thumb and you recoiled on me. And I think I may have spoken a little bit over his head there. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you pull back. He said, oh, well, uh, you oh. make me nervous. Oh. And I said, what? He said, yeah, you make me nervous. I said, why do I make you nervous? I'm an easygoing guy. He said, well, you're in this jacket and turtlenecks, if you can remember those days. You're in this jacket and turtleneck. And he said, I'm just a country boy, and I hear you talking to everybody, and you speak so well. And he said, you wouldn't want to talk to me. I said, oh, absolutely, I'd love to talk to you. So we started our, that's how we started Mm. our friendship. And we started by, he said, you're not from here. I will take you fishing. And I thought, what about me says fishing? (laughs) But, you know, whatever, I'll play along, right? So we spent the next month simply going fishing, or uh, it was the time of year where uh, we deer hunt here in Kentucky. So he wanted to take me deer hunting with him. I said, uh, (laughs) no. No, no. (laughs) Let's go. So... Yeah, I'm I'm golden, thanks. So he took me deer hunting with him and he got a deer and it was this 
thing where he shot the deer and we had to field dress it and all these things, right? So I'm still not exactly sure what his motives are. I'm not sure mm. if he's gay. Mm. I never asked him if he was gay or not. Right, so I wasn't exactly sure where we were in this whole thing. Right, and uh, the story briefly goes that on a Saturday I had a date with another gentleman. I lived in this tiny little apartment, so there's a knock on the door, and it's uh, it's Tim. I said, "Oh, hello." And just trying to make small talk with him, of course. And he comes in, and five minutes later, the gentleman that I'm going on a date mm. with comes in. And it's a small apartment with one couch and two chairs and a coffee table. So I sat down on the couch next to Tim because he happened to be there, and he put his arm around me. And I thought, oh, what is going on here? So I finally said, hey, we're, we're going on our date. So I went on my date. I came back Two, three hours later, and Tim is in the parking lot, and he is mad. I get out of the car from the gentleman. I wave by. I said, what are you doing here? And he lets me have it. So he said that all of this time, we had been dating. So, yes, and I'm going to say something that today will embarrass him, but perhaps some of your listeners would, would understand. He said this term to me. Where I'm from, when you are courting someone, you only court one person wow. at a time. How beautiful is that? Oh. <laughs> I had no idea. I said, is that what we're mm. doing? Courting? First of all, how antiquated is that term? Yes. So uh, he said, yes. And we have been courting for the last month and a half. We've gone fishing and deer hunting. And where I'm from, people don't do that with other people. They're just one person at a time. And he was genuinely yeah. upset. So that's when I knew we were yeah. courting. Yeah. And you know what? And I just, we talked about like, you asked about authenticity and, and stuff like how we, 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 we switch with different people. And that was what he had observed of what, what, what you do when you, when you're, that's, you know, yes. that was how you show that. And that's. That, that was his, that was his yeah. paradigm. His paradigm was to show love and affection, I guess, to go out yeah. and hunt down an animal and drag it home <laughs> for me. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> just the backstory is, is it, uh, we, we know that, you know, he's a son of a farmer and this is what, you know, he observed, this is, is what, you know, you do. And, and so this is a, a very, com- you know, a, a sacred thing that he's inviting you to be part of, kind of into the fold. Yes. And yeah, I, I mean, Absolutely. I can, you know, listen, I'm from Michigan and uh, I, I farmed for a while myself. So, I mean, I, I really, I, I see that love language there. Well, and that was his great, great term. That was his love language. And I simply was yeah. not aware that that was his love language. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm going out and fishing and all of these things, which is fine. It's not on the top of my radar, but sure, I'll do it. I was not aware. And that was his love language until I was. How beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story with us. I did not know that. And that's 28 years ago, October the 19th. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations to both you and Tim. Yes. Yeah. So you finish up grad school. Did you feel like uh, when you were going to school, did you set off with a desire to get that degree specifically to uh, get you to what you wanted to be doing in life career-wise? Yeah, well, I, I, by my nature, um, 
an academician and my parents are academia type of people. So that's just natural. And I met, I met my now husband. I met him my, I guess, going into my second semester of, of graduate school. And it, it just sort of worked out. Life sort of worked out. And I remember thinking, I said to him, listen, I am 22 years old. I am, I have no desire to be with someone permanently, you know, and nature, the universe, God gives you what, uh, what is going to happen. So it just happened that we immediately started dating. We moved in with each other and life continued school finished. And then mm. career. Did you started. set off to work in diversity and inclusion? I did not. That hap- that just evolved for me. Okay? That that was truly one of those things that evolved over time. Now be mindful. I'm I'm going to take you back to time frames. So by this time when I finished school, it was 1994 or 5. 94. Okay? That's when the notion of inclusion and diversity actually got on the radar when it came to corporate America. Think about it. The the marginalized community, such as the African-American community, um, you would get a commercial or two on Saturday after Soul Train, right? Let's be honest. So it was the early to mid-90s, you know, the Clinton era, when when the notion of diversity and inclusion really took a forefront in not only corporate America, but in many areas of America, in religion, in communities, etc. So that's really when it evolved for me, and when that was a natural progression for me. So Alex, so we know that you and Tim have celebrated 28 years together this past year, and we talked about, uh, you know, I, I think about this 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 kid that returned home for Thanksgiving that was sent out with a check and told that 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 was no longer to be part of you know that life because of some unfortunate turn of events with with your father building a church and where I get excited is was there a new opportunity for family and inclusion with you with with Tim? Absolutely, and one of the when we date people we date people for a number of reasons. Yes. And when we decide on our life partner, we do that for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons was for me, my husband was so deeply rooted in his family and his family were, they were the quintessential salt of the earth people. They were, they were very, very rural. And, you know, it was a guess who's coming to dinner sort of surprise kind of thing, right? When he brought me home. But absolutely, they were the family that I didn't have. And my relationship and subsequent marriage gave me the family that I didn't have. Now, we had to work through many, many, many bridge building, trust me. But it certainly was that opportunity. When when you talk about bridge build, building, what are what's important? Like, if I'm going to start, what, what have you found? That is like kind of like the key ingredients that are really needed to start with that foundation. I, I think the number one ingredient is just the desire to do it. Mm. Period. Just the desire. Do you want to do it? Do you have time? Do you care? Mm. Just the uh, the want and the desire to do it. In my personal life, I was I met this gentleman that was going to be the love of my life, and 
And I, I shared with him that I was not going to be a roommate or a friend. We were going to be partners. And at the at the time, that's what the term was, partners. Right. So we jumped into it head first. And again, because we have such different backgrounds, it, it required bridge building. And it requires steps into building that bridge. So was there uh, any foreshadowing on who was coming to dinner this year? <laughs> <laughs> there, <laughs> what a great question. There was not. Okay, there was not. We had made the decision after that ill-fated date with another person that if we were going to move forward, as I said, I had requirements. And one of my requirements were that I wasn't going to be anybody's shame or anybody's secret, right? And it was coming Thanksgiving time. And he said, okay, we're going to go to my aunt's house for Thanksgiving. I had not met mom and dad or sisters or anything. So to paint the picture, his aunt's house was this tiny little house in rural Kentucky uh, in which his mother had seven siblings and they all had children and their children were there and their husbands and everybody was there. And we walk in the door. You met everybody (laughs) on the first encounter. (laughs) I met everyone at the exact same time. Wow. This was uh, circa 1993, Mm -hmm. and everyone at the same time, and it's because it's a rural environment, everyone above the age of 13 had a cigarette in their hand, okay? (laughs) So, I'm painting the picture for you. The ladies all had beehives and cigarettes with the ashes just about to fall off, (laughs) and the gentlemen were all in overalls, camouflage overalls. You know, uh, so it was certainly an experience to walk into. So I, I just don't want to assume anything. Ethnically, th- for him to bring home someone that was different in that way, was there an inclination that there was also a romantic interaction here as well? What a great question. And the answer is no. And because mm-hmm. the answer is no, simply because my husband is uber masculine. Yeah, mm. and he he was the grandson that built cars for everybody, or fixed their tractors, or did these uber uber masculine things, right. right? So for many people, it was who is this? Why is he here? How does he have a friend like that? Mm. So uh, initially, there was not a declaration of orientation, nor was there a d- declaration of our relationship. And we we methodically thought about bridge building. Yeah. Yeah. So some, sometimes you can walk in and you can lay things down and demand respect and demand equality and demand, demand, demand. That works sometimes. But other times, it's consistent, gentle behaviors. Yeah. With me? Yes. So for us, we made the decision that it was going to be consistently seeing me. It was going to be consistently listening to Alex and his silly stories and making fun of somebody or joking and laughing or or grabbing the old ladies by the waistline and dancing with them. Mm-hmm. Or it was going to be consistently taking the nieces and nephews out to the park or to the zoo or just being that consistent, steady presence. Mm. Bridge building. Yeah, You can build a bridge in many, many ways. It's interesting when you say that you're, you know, you're, you're building bridges, but what I'm hearing too is that you're building relationships. You're, you're forming relationships with people so that, 
you know, I'm sure, you know, that first sort of that first meet, meet and greet, you know, everyone is sort of making their own assumptions, you know, of who you are and, and what you're doing uh, with their, you know, their son, their grandson, their uncle, you know, nephew. But once you start getting to know people and once you start putting the energy and the effort into getting to know people, the most times it's reciprocal. Then they want to start getting to know you. And I think, you know, so many times we put this, you know, there's this wall that goes up right away, like a defense mechanism. And it's like, if we were just to keep that down, not not if you're in harm, you know, I should say that. Like if you're in a in a harmful situation, that's not the case. But if you're just you know, like this is a very safe situation to be in. And it's like, all you're doing is you're talking about lowering your guard and letting people in, showing them who you are and engaging with them too. I think you're basically laying the foundation to be able to build a bridge between yourself and them. Absolutely. And it, again, it was not walk in the door. Hey, guess who's coming to dinner? Mm -hmm. We are a gay couple damn it, you have to love us, you have to respect us, and we have to be equal. We did not do that. There are a number of ways to build a bridge, or a colloquialism is there are 10 ways to skin a cat, Mm -hmm. right? So we were methodical about that, and the consistency of being with each other, showing our love for each other, showing our respect for each other, showing our love for our family, that was what we chose to do. Yeah. yeah, and I think that sometimes that we have we have to think about the outcome, the day to day stuff that what we're trying to get to. That if I can rise above that and understand that no fault to some of other people's own, that their only experience with the homosexual was that that monster underneath the bed that Mister Swagger had told ever warned everyone about. Yes, right. Absolutely. And so you know the there's been a you know so the best thing is. The best PR is a personal experience with something that states the otherwise. Absolutely. And I have my, I define my life with steps to do next, right? So tomorrow I've got four steps I need to do to get things done for Christmas. So the steps, number one step for me is it's a Stephen Covey thing. Begin with the end in mind. Yeah. So I knew because of the nature of our relationship, the nature of our connection, I knew that this was not going to be a fling, a trick, or something short-term. So I began with the end. What did I want the end to look like? The end for me to look like was to be fully integrated into this family, to be fully integrated into his life. And yes, I can tell you from that one experience on Thanksgiving of 1993, his relatives had never even talked to a black person. His relatives had never even broke bread, had any conversations with, other than what they saw on the news, which, as we all know, is bad. Mm-hmm. They never had those experiences. So I knew that. And I knew going into it, I burdened, I carried the burden of that. And I knew what I had to do. Hmm. So if someone's listening who maybe is in a a similar situation where they feel like that they need to start building bridges, would would you offer any um, advice or any tips on what they can start doing to, to do that? Absolutely. So when we talk about building a bridge, I shared earlier there are 10 ways to skin a cat, right? So know your audience. 
And this is something that we should all do anyway. Know your audience. There are some people that are responsive to you going in and just taking charge and being forceful. Other people, you have to sort of wine and dine. So know your audience. So if there are any listeners that are in a similar situation, start slow. Get to know people. We don't have to have major conversations the first day out, right out of the crack of the bat, right? Those aren't necessary. Start slow. Meet. Have dinner. Have lunch. Do something simple. So, Alex, there's something that stuck out to me a minute ago. And you talked about how it became stronger from what took place, you know, that sophomore year of college with, with your family. And I know that for myself that I've learned that sometimes I can be a people pleaser and that that people you know, just follow me for a second. Hopefully this makes sense. <laughs> it may or may not. We'll see. But that my desire to want to be loved, um, which is a, is, a, is a good thing, right? To be liked, to be loved. You know, that's a natural thing. We all have that. But when you had that realization, at least what, what I'm hearing is, is that, that you could still go on living your life and you were able to show up at this Thanksgiving meal and then multiple meals then after with, you didn't have to get, you, you weren't needing that from them to get that to you right away. So you didn't like push anyone down or mow anyone over in the process. You set off on an end goal that obviously, you know, we can't, we, we know that Lisa. I know, I, I want to say this out loud, you can't take people where they don't want to go. So you have to have a willing partner in any relationship. It's 50-50. Mm-hmm. But you met people where, where they were at and your relationship with Tim was not contingent on, on their approval. But if you had the opportunity to a desire to build this relationship with them, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. So just, just hear me out for one more minute. Is it you, you and I, like I've had time to realize, to get to know myself as a, as a gay man. You know, you, you know, you have time to get to know Tim and, and, you know, to be fair, like some of my family didn't know all this was going on in my head over these years. And so when I would come back once a year to the holidays for them to get to know me and these things that I've been able to experience that had been running through my head over the years that they had no, no clue over. Does that, yes. does that make sense at all? It makes a lot of sense. So with that being said, you started to give a little and get a little is what I'm hearing maybe with them. I did. Now, let me tell you that one of the things that my personal development goal is still working on that need and that desire to be liked and loved, mm. okay? I think when, you're, when you are abandoned as a child or a young adult, that scar never leaves. And for me, that scar will never leave. I'm going, as I said earlier, I will be 50 next week, and that scar tissue is still there emotionally, the yeah. desire to be liked and loved. However, I began with the end in mind. I knew that my relationship with Tim was going to be a lifelong event. I didn't know how. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know what God would give me. But I did know that it was going to be much more than a passing thing. Mm. So beginning with the end in mind, I wanted to have that relationship with his family. And I cannot begin to tell you how solid and wonderful his family is as people, right? But now, let me not fool you. There are still some uncles and cousins and aunts that won't even look at me, (laughs) okay? There are some that will go, oh, you're still here, Alex. And I think, yes, it's been 30 years. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, So, and that's fine. I don't, I don't require their stamp of approval. I don't require that. The stamp of approval that I needed, I got from mom and dad. 
that turned out to be, ironically, our best friends. And from our nieces that are now that they're now married women, have children of their own, that they don't know life without me. It's uh, it's beginning with that end in mind, and I just knew what I wanted and what I needed, and I knew that there were steps that I needed to go through, and I was methodical in those steps. Can you talk a little bit more about those steps, just so uh, people have uh, maybe some some ideas where they can start off with, or you know, more of a plan? Absolutely. Now, it may sound odd to your ear or odd to some of your listeners' ear, but I literally planned out my relationships with them. And again, uh, from a business perspective, I'm a huge Stephen Covey fan. And uh, he wrote the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So it's just something that resonated with me in graduate school. So again, I started out beginning with the end in mind. I knew that this is what I wanted. And let me say this, this applies to the bridge building between the African-American community and the LGBTQI community. The steps are the same. What did I want? I wanted to have a relationship with them. Okay, so that was it. That's what I decided, right? How am I going to do it? I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to share with them. I'm not going to push anything on them. I'm just going to physically be in the room. I'm just going to physically go um, pick tomatoes with them. I'm just going to physically take the kids to the zoo. I'm just going to go and have, we, you guys up north call it dinner, but we call it supper here in the south. I'm going to go and have supper with them. I'm just going to move that step. I'm going to be proactive in moving this forward. I'm going to think about this as a win-win for both of us. It's going to be a win for me because it's going to give me the family that I so greatly, greatly desired. Mm -hmm. It's going to give me the family that literally told me, here's a check, good luck with life. Mm -hmm. It's going to give me a family that says, hey, we don't want anything from you. Can you come over for supper? What are y'all doing later? Are we going to stop by your house? That kind. So I I thought of it as kind of a win-win. Okay? And another Stephen Covey, I'm sure some of your listeners are hearing this, is I'm going to first seek to be understood and then understand. I didn't want them to agree with my orientation. I didn't want them to agree with the idea that their heavy-set rural white son is going to marry this skinny black (laughs) urban guy you don't need to agree i will never ask jeff can you agree with me please anthony will you agree with i'll never ask you to agree with me i just want you to understand where i'm coming from Mm. i simply want you to understand the nature of our relationship no more no less i don't i don't need an agreement We just understand. Then I want to sit down and understand from your perspective. And that for me was hard. Mm. That was hard for me to sit and listen to someone else's perspective Mm -hmm. when it directly related to me. I wanted to listen to the sister that uh, talked about being ashamed of, of the brother my husband. Mm. I wanted to talk to the sister that 
would say she was embarrassed to be at a restaurant and I'm there and people wonder, who's that black guy there? Mm. That's hard. Mm -hmm. But it's a part of the growth experience. One of the conversations that is not had very often is the disconnect between the African-American community and the LGBTQI community. What are some of those disconnects? Certainly. And let me start by a disclaimer. Here's my disclaimer. This is my opinion. Mm. These are my experiences. I do not speak for an entire community. Mm-hmm. whether that's black or LGBTQI. Right. These are my experiences, okay? So there's my disclaimer. There is a disconnect between our communities. And I'm sure if you guys talk to any uh, gay or lesbian African-American person, they would share the same story. But where my passion, my calling, for lack of a dramatic term, my calling has been to do what I can to bridge these communities together politically, mm. together socially, because my goodness, would we not be a dynamic political force should we join forces? Mm. Period. Would we not be? I think we would. And if nothing else, we've learned over the last past five years or so the importance of of political bridge building. So there are a number of disconnects. And I say the disconnects fall on both sides of the coin. The gay and lesbian community, we listen, we are at the infancy stage of equality. We've done it. I mean, we got it. We came a long way with the Supreme Court ruling in 2015. Look how much we stepped back our, our trans brothers and sisters. Look how much has been taken away from them over the course of the last four years. Mm-hmm. So we as a, as peoples on both sides, the LGBTQI and the African-American communities, we simply need to build those bridges and we start by one thing, beginning with the end in mind. What do we want? Mm-hmm. What do we want? Yeah. Do we want to be buddies? where we can say, hey, as we walk past each other on the street, Mm -hmm. do we want to be a political force? What is it that we want? And I would challenge you and your listeners, what do you want from that? If you, listen, if you are status quo and everything's great and and somehow you think it's fine, then okay. But if you understand the importance of that bridge building, the importance of it politically and socially, what do you want? What does it look like? you that is it's it's an invitation to dream there isn't it oh absolutely absolutely it is an invitation to just sit back and think about what it could be mm-hmm. okay now i i tend to romanticize things that's just my personality but i romanticize the the notion of just from a political perspective joining forces listen let's let's pause for a moment and, and, and give a, a clap out to the black and brown women mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and in Georgia. We saw what the, those forces coming together. Now, let's also think, look how large the gay and lesbian community is in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Look how large the gay and lesbian community is in Chicago, in Pittsburgh. Joining those forces together, building those bridges. How do we do it? 
Do we want to do it? What does it mean? And what does it look like? And I feel that my role in life, my calling from Christ, is to bring those bridges together. Alex, I just want to thank you so much for for spending some time with us today, for giving us all that permission that you know that uh, is so needed. I'm just going to take that with me today, and a lot of the wonderful things that you you've really instilled in, in me today with with your life experience. I see how it served you, and I'm a believer in in, in the life that you have today. And I take to credit the way that you've lived your life through your experience and what you have to show for yourself today, and who you are as a person because of that. So thank you so much. Well, I, th- I thank you for having me. And you said for giving permission. Absolutely. Please hear me as I leave you today. Please hear me say that we have permission to build those bridges. You have permission. No longer can you sit on the sidelines and hope for these communities to come together. Do your part. Listen, I'm not asking you to be the Rosa Parks of bringing the gay and black community together, right? Somebody has that role. I don't know who it is. I'm not asking anyone in your audience to do that. What I'm simply saying is first step back and fantasize with me as we did earlier in our conversation. Fantasize about the policies and procedures that would benefit you as an individual should these communities come together. Keep in mind, I will say again, we are not going to agree on everything. We are not required to. Not one group has the monopoly on hurt. Mm -hmm. We've all been hurt. We've all been hurt. We've all been marginalized. So I'll say to you again, begin with the end in mind. Find that person. Be, Be proactive. Reach out to that friend. Seek someone out purposely and do not feel uncomfortable with that think of this as a win-win this is going to be a win for you and a win for that person i guarantee it you will someone said to me i didn't know what the whole thing about black girls and their hair what a big thing that was right he learned by just talking to someone just talk be think of it as a win-win seek to understand a part of conversation is just sitting back mm. and listening african-american person sit back and listen to your lgbtqi person you don't have to compare it with your experiences you don't have to go yeah but this happened to me yeah but we were enslaved yeah we were no no just sit back and listen Just listen. Seek to understand. My LGBTQI person, sit back and listen. Hear those ugly, ugly stories. And they hurt. And you're somewhat embarrassed by them. You didn't do them. What are you embarrassed for? Sit back and listen to your African-American person. Share their individual experience about discrimination. Share their individual experience about economic growth and wealth and fight. Share their experience about what they as a people have gone through over 400 years of oppression in this country that, by the way, continues. Just sit back and listen. Don't compare. We're not, it's not apples and oranges. It's apples and oranges. You're not comparing. Just listen. And lastly, 
bring those coalitions and those communities together. You will be blessed by having that experience. You will you will be a better person. You will grow from that experience, and you will see how you and the LGBTI community can grow, and you will see how you and the African-American community will grow just as a result of simple friendship. Thank you all. Uh, thanks, Alex. We hope you enjoyed Alex's story. For more information on Alex and to take a look at some of the resources he recommends, visit his profile page on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store. Thanks again for listening, and remember to be true, be you, and to talk out loud.